God freely entered into a covenant of restoration and blessing with Abraham. By faith, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This covenant promise made with our fathers in faith flows effectually throughout generations. God's New Testament people are now heirs according to the promise. What God started in Genesis is now sealed and secure in Christ Jesus. Even, even for believers, even for those who have, who have trusted and are following the Lord, it's, it's very easy and it's consistent with the, with the spirit of the age that's all around us to fall into sort of a, a, a working worldview. And I'm about to use a big word, but it's not that big. It's very easy to fall into a working worldview that is anthropocentric. Now, that, that word's got a lot of syllables in it, but don't let it put you off. Anthropo means mankind, as in anthropology in the academic world. Centric just means what it sounds like, centered. And an anthropocentric worldview is, is a worldview that, that, that sort of, well, man is the measure of all things. And, and, and what, what, what's happening is, is mostly driven by people and what they think and what they do. And, 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 and mankind is sort of the, the most important moving force in the world. Now, for those of us who, who know Jesus and, and who are informed by the word of God, we do not, or at least ought not, have an anthropocentric worldview, but rather a theocentric worldview. That is, theo, God, as in, as in theology, right? And centric, centered upon. That, that we are living our lives out in the, in the sphere of reality that is, and it is the hand of a sovereign God that is the most important thing moving in this universe. Abram and Sarah have been the recipient, recipients of, of, of astounding promises that God has made and reaffirmed. In the previous chapter, we saw God formalize those promises. And, and among those promises, a, a multitude of descendants, beginning with biological offspring, which hadn't happened yet. When my sons were in their lower elementary grades, we lived in Ocala, Florida, mid-90s. And they attended a wonderful elementary school. It was a public school, but it was <laughs> a number of the administrators and a lot of the teachers were members of, of our church. We were, at that time, we were attending the First Baptist Church of Ocala. And, and we joked that that, that that school there in the, the part of Ocala where we lived was a, was a private Christian school with the state of Florida picking up the bill. I guess the ACLU had never heard of Ocala, Florida, because, I mean, they, they 
pray on the intercom in Jesus' name and stuff like that all the time. Different day, different, different place. But a sign on the outside of that elementary school said in a, in a big cheery font, sort of words to live by, the sign said, if it's to be, it's up to me. That's catastrophic if you take it to heart. Because that will place you not only in a anthropocentric worldview, it'll place you most disastrously of all in a you-centered worldview. That you are the ultimate mover and shaker in your own life. <laughs> and you're not. It's like the athlete that says, well, our fate's in our own hands. We control our destiny. And then the next week has a season-ending injury. So much for you controlling your own destiny you never, ever do. It, it, it creeps into even the philosophies of our day. I've watched in recent years as the, as the verb to manifest has come into common usage. And you see it everywhere. To manifest something is to take something that is not and bring it into existence by my speech or my wishful thinking. I've just manifested this outcome, and so it's going to happen. And if you listen for it, you'll hear it all the time as though somehow mankind has God's own creative power. You don't. You don't. It even, it even seeps into some, some false Christian settings in the, in the domain of the, of the name it and claim it folks and the, uh, the, the realm of, of, in some extreme cases, what is explicitly called the little God's doctrine. That you are, in fact, invested with, with creative power like the living gods. And that it is you who are most important in making things happen in your life. The Word of God just won't have that. A biblically informed, God-centered view will not have that. You simply are not that important. Not in terms of managing the universe. Again, Abram and Sarah have received astonishing promises from God. God has even repeated himself. But, not happening yet. And so, like so many in our world today, Abram and Sarah began to buy into this really bad idea, as I put it on your notes, that, that my words are actions. What I do is the true key to things working out as they ought to work out. If it's to be, it's up to me. That's going to lead to a, a, a really, really bad shortcut that's ultimately gonna have some really significant consequences as we come to Genesis 16. Roman numeral one, we see a mistaken scheme, a mistaken scheme.
scheme. Verses one through six of Genesis 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I, yeah, well, that one turned quick. I gave my, I've never had anybody just laugh out loud at that moment before. That tells me y'all are paying attention and you get what just happened. We'll come back to it, but I love that. Y'all have made my morning and it's just nine after 10. When she saw she had conceived, she looked on her with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she, Hagar, fled from her. See at least three things in this mistaken scheme. I've got them there on your outline. Letter A, we see impatience. We see impatience. Our world so praises and so values. Initiative, get things done, drive to conclusions. And, and there's nothing wrong with showing initiative. Let me be clear about that. I'll, I'll say more about that in a moment. But, but when you are in a situation where drive, motivation, initiative may put you at cross purposes, well, I believe the, the, the ultimate description of what a life possessed by God the Holy Spirit looks like is the inventory of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5.16. If you are walking with the Spirit, if you are following Jesus successfully and productively, then the characteristics that will, that will be harvestable like fruit from your life will look like love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if an outcome you desire violates or causes you to have to dismiss those characteristics, you need to think carefully about why you desire it. Because it just may not be worth it. Here, Sarah gets impatient. Evidently, Abram impatient as well. To, to accept God's will in a matter has to include accepting God's timing. Let me say that again because somebody in the room really needs to hear that. 
to accept God's will in a matter must include accepting God's timing in that matter. Because you are in fact living in a God-centered reality. And he is in control of a host of variables you cannot touch. If it's to be, it's up to him. But here we see impatience. So Sarah serves up her servant Hagar to her husband, which leads letter B to immorality. This, this adulterous nonsense. One thing worth noting, this, this custom of we are a childless couple, therefore let's, let's have our servant be a surrogate. That was culturally normative in Abraham, Abram and Sarah's day. Hear me. Because things in my life aren't going the way I wish they were, I will result or resort to adultery. And the culture will tell me that's okay. Does that sound familiar to you? We hadn't progressed all that much, have we? Because today, if your, if your marriage isn't, isn't going the way you wish it was, this culture will, will push and suggest adultery. Adultery is probably what you need to make you happy. And after all, your happiness in the moment is life's most desirable outcome, right? Hogwash. This adulterous nonsense would have been culturally supported. Now, some of you already think, well, yeah, but God hadn't given the law yet. No, but God has given the example of Adam and Eve, which Jesus said is God's example for marriage of one man, one woman, till death do us part. That has been God's paradigm. That remains God's paradigm. And right now, to chase this rabbit a couple of steps further, some of you have had... <laughs> biographies that have had some complexity. Chapters that didn't go the way you wish they had. And as I've said before, I don't even have a high horse. I'm not being judgy. But from this day forward, if that's you, and today you are married, from this day, day forward God's will for you you do not have to wonder is one man one woman till death you part that's his will that's his model that's his plan and no cheating sideways because you ain't happy the impatience of Abraham and Sarah that led to this this shortcut that impatience opens the door to this immorality. And by the way, you could make the case that Hagar shouldn't even have been a part of their household. What, where, where's Hagar from? Egypt. They doubtless picked her up during that ill-advised Egyptian detour all the way back in chapter 12. You could make the case that Hagar shouldn't have even been a part of their household. You can absolutely make the case that this adultery is a bad idea because it is. 
And predictably, the impatience leads to the immorality and the immorality leads to an implosion. Sarah immediately, well, Hagar, when she finds out she's pregnant, starts looking down her nose at Sarah. Because see, in the world of their day, to be the woman who could bear children put her in a place of elevated social status over the woman who had not yet born children. So Hagar gets uppity in her relationship with Sarah. Well, that's a bad idea. And then Sarah gets resentful. Y'all laughed when I read it. May the wrong that's been done to me be on you. You notice what Abram doesn't say, because nothing in the Bible says that Abram was stupid. You notice what Abram doesn't say? Abram doesn't say, uh, sweetie, you, you, you do remember this was your idea. He knows better than to say that. That would, that would end the story of Abram right quick. There'd be a Dateline episode when she stabs him in his sleep, you know? <laughs> but now, now Sarah, Sarah's all fouled up in her relationship with Hagar. She's all fouled up and resentful in her relationship to her husband. And then Abram, he gets, he gets cruel and dismissive. It's probably one of the weakest leadership moments we'll see in his life, and there are several. When she comes to him and says, that servant of mine that you got pregnant is treating me in a contemptuous way, he says to her, hey, she's your slave, do whatever you want to with her. The way I put it on your outline, he gets, he gets cruel and dismissive. I have written on my notes after all that mess. What I wrote down is, well, that worked. <laughs> A shortcut. If you turn over to the top of the next page on your notes, what I've written there is, is, is a cautionary note. And I want to be careful. Nothing here is advocating sheer passivity. We are not just flopped out on an inner tube riding the lazy river of God's will. And I know that, and the Word of God knows that. However, we are to be patient. We are to have lives marked by enduring faithfulness to God's revealed will. And never, never will violating the principles of this word of God put you in a good place in terms of God's will. If you are tempted by a shortcut that cuts a corner on obedience to what God has said to get you to the outcome you want, even if you think the outcome you want is what God wants for you, if you've got a shortcut in mind that violates God's word, it's not going to go well. Don't do it. Remember Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. But right in the middle of that mess, Roman numeral two, we encounter a merciful Savior. A merciful Savior. Here's an important truth. I've put it in your notes. God loves 
and works in the lives of sinful people. God works with broken and messed up people. Now, it is critical to remember that we do not place our experience in the place of mastery over God's word. We do not interpret God's word in light of our experience. Because of our own drive for self-deceit, we dare not interpret God's word because of what we've experienced. Rather, we must be diligent and deliberate to interpret our experiences in light of what we learn in God's word. God's word is driving. Our experiences are subject to God's word. In this case, God's word makes it clear that God works in the lives of sinful, broken, messed up people. Here's the thing. Our experience makes that pretty easy to see as well. (laughs) If your story and your testimony would include anything of God working in your life, and I pray it does, I believe it does, If God has worked in your life, how do you know that God works in the lives of sinful, broken, messed up people? Cause you, cause you, the person in the room this morning that is in the greatest danger is a person who would say, well, I don't know about that sinful, broken, messed up people. I I just don't experience that. If that's you this morning, you are in grave danger of the eternal loss of your soul. Because see, God does work in the lives of sinful, broken, messed up people who come to him pleading for his mercy and grace, very aware that they are sinful, broken, messed up people. And we flee to the cross of Jesus Christ where he paid the penalty for our sin debt due to a holy God. And we rejoice in an empty tomb that proves that payment was sufficient. And we walk now in the light of having turned from our sin and trusted Jesus Christ as our savior. We walk along broken, yes, messed up, yes, but forgiven and on course for heaven. Not because of the works of righteousness that we would manage to scrape together, but because of the mercy of a holy God. Unsurprisingly, pregnant Hagar, kicked out, hopeless, homeless, a long, long way from where she grew up, a long, long way from any sort of security. meets a merciful savior. Letter A, we see a God who pursues, a Lord who pursues. The angel of the Lord, verse seven, and referred to again by that title several times through the paragraph. When you see that phrase, you never see that phrase in the Old Testament, I mean New Testament. The angel of the Lord stops appearing when Jesus comes to the earth. Most scholars agree, and I with them, that when you see in the Old Testament, not an angel, but the angel of the Lord, you're seeing Jesus putting in a cameo appearance on earth before his ultimate appearance on earth in Bethlehem. This is a visitation by God the Son to the people of earth. It happens in the Old Testament on a number of occasions. The uh, theologians call it a Christophany or a, as I have in your notes, a theophany. 
a God appearance. I believe this is God. She's gonna address him as God. He's gonna accept it. No angel would do that. This is God. The angel of the Lord found her. He found her because he went looking for her. He found her because he cared about her. The spring on the way to Shur, where she was in verse seven. Well, let me just read the verses. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have been seen or I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was named Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Letter A again, the Lord pursues. He came to her there. The, uh, the spring on the way to Shur is on her way back to a road that would have led a caravan road that would have taken her ultimately back to Egypt. She's been away from Egypt for years, but maybe somebody there remembers her. Maybe there's some family or friend with a long memory. Maybe, maybe somewhere that she can, she can come through this pregnancy and the birth of this infant boy. Maybe there's some hope to be had in that direction. The Lord came to her there. Not only does the Lord pursue, but the Lord prescribes. The Lord gives her some direction. <laughs> Two things he specifically directs. First, he, he directs the mom's course of action. Now, it rings strange in our ears when God says to her, go, go back, return to your mistress and submit. Our 21st century ears go, whoo. But remember, her alternative is a months long journey with who knows who back down into Egypt to who knows what. At least if she goes back to the household of Abram and Sarah, she'll be able to, to survive the pregnancy. At least there will be provision for her and her infant son. So of the alternatives that she has, the Lord directs her, this is the one you ought to take. And further, the Lord directs her regarding the boy's name. Name him God hears, because that's what Ishmael means. So that that all of his days he will remember there is a God who hears. Every time he says his name, God hears. You know, God prescribes to our lives today. As we follow Jesus, we're not setting the direction, the pace, where the turns are. We follow him. We follow him because he is Lord and we are not. But his prescriptions for us 
are for his glory and always for our good as he sees it. Even if at times it's not the course of action we would choose. And then he promises. The character of the boy, <laughs> he's gonna be like a wild donkey. Now that's not the insult in their setting that it is in ours. The wild donkey was a, was a free roaming, stubborn wilderness beast, but free and independent, strong. Here, your boy is going to be independent and nomadic and untamable. And while you and I know more about what comes of Ishmael and his ultimate descendants, don't let that knowledge, if you have it, distort what's going on in this moment as a tender savior intervenes for the life of an as yet unborn little boy who would have had no future and no hope were it not for this visit. Be patient, endure, don't let godless shortcuts cause disruption in your life. If you can't get there with patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, love, joy, self-respect, I mean self-discipline and peace, then maybe you don't need to be there. And if you find yourself outcast, the victim of a shortcut you've taken, or worse, the victim of a shortcut somebody else took, trust in the God who comes, in the one who pursues.